welcome back to the Millennial Ag Podcast, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us this week, your co-hosts, Valine Cawhorn and Catherine Lotspeech. This week's episode is brought to you by BASF, helping farmers do the biggest job on earth. Listeners, uh, welcome to election week or the week following or the days following election um we promised to bring tanner beamer back on and Catherine unfortunately can't join us but our good friend tanner's back on and if you didn't hear last week's episode i think you need to go listen to that one first um because a lot has happened since we last talked tanner yeah they can go back and listen to last week and see just how wrong i actually was about how things were going to shake out so uh but it's good it is always good to be back well, good. Well, Tanner, what were you most um, surprised about, I guess? You know, I think the thing that was uh, so surprising to me is just how well Democrats performed in the midterm election. Now, uh, it was not enough to retain the majority, but just for some context here, right, President Biden's approval ratings are hovering in the low, low, low 40s. And we have kept track of presidential approval ratings for just shy of a century. And at no time in history of the in the history of keeping track of the president's approval rating has the president's party retained a majority in congress uh, with approval ratings as low as this president has so we weren't looking for that to to change things up but that being said if you go back and listen to the podcast that we did last week i was predicting that you know we'd see somewhere between 20 to 25 seats and on a good night we could see as high as 40 seats in a new Republican majority. And while at this stage, we have yet to have officially called a majority in the House of Representatives, I think we can pretty comfortably say that we are going to see Republicans come back, but it is going to be by a vastly smaller margin. Um, I think it's too early to call right now, but I'm going to go ahead and guess it's going to be 10 seats or probably less then that uh, is the only majority that they will enjoy in the House of Representatives. So that was, to me, probably the biggest thing coming out of election night. And for the record, that was even obvious on election night for the results we did see come in, let alone states like Georgia and Arizona and Nevada, where we knew it was going to be a couple days before we actually got solid results. Um, So I I think Republicans are pretty handily going to take the election as we stand right now, two days after the election. They're currently, uh, they've currently flipped six seats uh, and they have 209 declared seats. So they only need eight more to get to that majority number. Uh, and so we will, we will see kind of how it shakes out. We talked, you mentioned Nevada being one of the states that we're, we're waiting to get the results on. Um, Idaho, for example, it's still technically unofficial, um, but it's pretty obvious where Idaho stands as far as um, their congressional districts. Which other states are we kind of waiting to see results come back in on? You know, I think the, the, the states are a lot easier to look at than individual congressional districts. Some of those districts are, are so close that they uh, haven't called them yet because they were going through those results with a fine tooth comb to make sure that they have uh, the right results. And so uh, from a state perspective though, I think uh, we're still as of this moment waiting on Nevada to make an official call. Adam Laxalt is currently leading Kathy Cortez Masto by uh, quite a few thousand votes. Um, I think he will be pretty safely elected as the next United States Senator from Nevada 
when they get there. Georgia, uh, neither of those candidates got uh, the 50% necessary to uh, win the election outright. So they're going to a runoff election the first week of December. We're still waiting back for results in Arizona. It seems like a lot of the issues we had with vote counting in Maricopa County back in 2020 are still continuing to cause some problems for us here in 2022, although to a, a seemingly lesser extent than it did two years ago. But we are still waiting on some of the results in Arizona. There is a key House race up in Arizona as well. Democrat Tom O'Halloran in the second district uh, is, is not looking like he's going to come back to Washington, D.C. for uh, another term. He's been in Congress for forever, uh, and it looks like he will lose his seat to his Republican challenger. Um, I, I don't know if the same story can be said in the statewide Senate race. Um, and then we're also waiting on the results out of Alaska. Uh, it always takes a while in uh, Alaska just because it's so remote. People are so spread out. Some of those uh, entire townships right, are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles away from their neighbors. So it takes a while to get back uh, results in, in, in Alaska. Also interesting in Alaska, they this year are doing voting very differently, right? They have a ranked choice system where uh, a candidate in order to win an election outright has to receive 50% or more of the vote. Uh, and if that doesn't happen after the first ballots are cast, uh, they eliminate the lowest vote getter. And then if you voted for that lowest vote getter, you indicate on your ballot who your second choice is, and then your votes go to that person. So that is the system that was in place during the special election to replace the late Congressman Don Young, uh, which gave us a Democrat from Alaska for the first time in, uh, I think, 40 some odd years. It could be more than that now that I think about it, because Don Young was in Congress for about that length of time. Um, but, you know, that that could very well play into uh, some some interesting dynamics in the Alaska Senate race. Um, I think Lisa Murkowski has a pretty good chance of coming back, uh, but that is that is going to play in there. So I mean, those are those are five states and those are five big ones, right? Uh, as it sits right now, you know, based on the numbers that I am seeing in some of these states and the fact that Fetterman pretty handily beat Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania, uh, I think that the the most likely outcome in this is uh, another 50-50 Senate which ostensibly gives de facto power back to the Democrats for the same reason they've held it for the last two years. Uh, so we will see what happens. Um, you know, that, that really kind of speaks to some of the lessons we've learned in this election. Uh, but those are, those are the states that uh, are outstanding as of right now, with some individual races peppered in there as well on the House side. Yeah, so it's what I learned, I guess, this year was like Georgia with the Herschel Walker race, specifically um, the 50% you have to have 50% majority to, to take that seat. And with the um, constitutional, you know, even though Herschel looked like he lost, if I remember correctly, with a lot of votes, well, not a lot, but 2% of the votes going to that constitutional candidate, they were headed back for a um, race off again, um, the first week of December. So, I mean, there's still a lot that can happen in and a lot of campaigning left to do, I guess, in that situation, really. You know, in, in, in Georgia, you're going to see the same thing you saw back in 2020 as well, when Kelly Leffler and David Perdue were both uh, running with all they had in a runoff election. You know, I think, when, unfortunately, in Georgia, in these types of circumstances, I think that the, uh, the uh, going to a runoff favors the Democrats. And I think the reason I say that is the uh, Democratic Party and Democratic aligned super PACs 
and the same can be said for Republicans, but it's been more effective for Democrats the last two times this has happened. They are able to concentrate the entirety of their might and their resources on one state, as opposed to, you know, almost 40 states where they have to spread resources evenly for some of these competitive districts on the same election night, right? Everything is in theory going to be decided by the time we get to the Georgia runoff. And so there will be a lot of money that goes into that race. There's going to be a lot of time spent on the campaign trail. A lot of volunteers will get deployed down to Georgia to knock doors. And uh, and so you, you'll see just a, a mass concentration uh, down there in the South. So I think that that is uh, probably a favorable outcome for Democrats. The interesting thing about Georgia, and this speaks to, I think, what the number one lesson we should learn from the election this year. We should learn several lessons, but the number one is that Republicans have a Trump problem. A lot of people have been watching the Georgia Senate elections, but re remember, that is not the top race on the Georgia ballot. The top race on election night was actually a rematch between Republican incumbent Brian Kemp, who's the current governor, and Democratic challenger Stacey Abrams. And it was, I think, only about four hours after the polls closed that we had enough results come back that said uh, Brian Kemp would uh, receive the necessary votes to get reelected as governor. Him and Herschel Walker were running on the exact same ballot, which means that independent voters and perhaps even some Republican voters split the ticket. And uh, they opted to go for Brian Kemp, who was pretty uh, famous in this election cycle for standing up to Donald Trump when he wanted to overturn the election. And on the flip side of that, you have Herschel Walker, who has made no bones about his close relationship with Donald Trump. He's modeled his campaign uh, very much the way that Donald Trump did in 2016 and 2020. And that did it, it's not looking like it paid off for him, even if he is able to squeak out a victory in this runoff. Uh, the, the margins by which he wins are not going to be the same. And that can be said for Dr. Oz. That can be said for Lauren Boebert in Colorado. That race wasn't even supposed to be close. And she uh, is running behind, way behind in Colorado. It is not looking like she's going to hold on to that seat, uh, which is a pretty Republican heavy district. Uh, so I think Republicans have a Trump problem and they are going to have to reconcile that. It's going to be a very tough pill to swallow for a lot of people in the party. Uh, but I believe that, you know, if, if we're going to continue to see Republican candidates that model themselves after Donald Trump, that hinge their electability on their closeness to him, we're, we're going to continue to see Things like what happened on Tuesday, where it should have, by all accounts, been a Republican blowout, and it just flat wasn't. No, I think that's a, I mean, we've been, I've been preaching about that for a while now, you know, in some form or fashion um, of the extremism and the lack of character, I guess, if I can go that far um, with, with some of those positions and it, the clickbaitiness of it sells, you know, you, Trump, I mean, he had the apprentice, he had, you know, those you're fired, you, you know, a lot of things that got Americans excited, but once he was elected, he flipped a lot of things around, um, and, and lost that. I, I say the true credibility of the Republican party has, it was originally set up and that might be a far-fetched opinion, um, to some, but, um, I think I think you nailed it on the head with the the problem with at least the Republican Party. 
Yeah. And, you know, Democrats are not immune to that either. But, uh, you know, for whatever reason, well, we know the reason it's it, this is not a referendum on Democrats and Joe Biden. I think that's another thing that's pretty important, right? Because if you remove Trump from the equation, I think that this election would have been a referendum on the Biden presidency. And Republicans still probably would have had less of a good night as maybe pundits were speculating they would going into it because you know, one thing I'm looking at, remember when we talked last time, I talked about districts like the North Carolina 13th and districts like the Iowa 3rd, the Colorado 8th, uh, and the Virginia 7th. And those are very, very heavily suburban districts with a high concentration of independent voters. And uh, one thing I think that we saw is that uh, the issue that motivated people in those districts was uh, the, the Supreme Court's Dobb decision more so than it was the economy or inflation, which is not what we were, were seeing in polling results leading up to the election. I think part of that could be um, because, you know, you've seen some softening of prices. Uh, some of the inflationary numbers are starting to look a little bit more positive. Um, but again, it's just it, in addition to the the Trump problem that the party has, with Trumpism kind of comes a certain list of talking points, right? And I can't tell you how many meetings I had with candidates where in a general election setting, they wanted to talk about the border wall. They wanted to talk about crime. And in a lot of these suburban districts, uh, that's not an issue that people want to hear about. Some of those traditional, quote unquote, Republican talking points don't sell well. So in addition to solving the Trump problem that I think uh, is pretty apparent within the party, is also looking at messaging, right? We are still very much in a situation where you have to vote your district. You have to represent your district and your constituents, right? Sticking to the party talking points isn't gonna get it done in a, in a district that is, you know, highly suburban, you've got different types of industry over here. You know, you, you really do have to look at the individual needs and, and adjust your campaign accordingly. That's how successful candidates go on to win. It's how you've seen Republicans unseat Democrats in this election. It's how you've seen Democrats hold on to their seats in this election. And it's how you've seen there have been some Democratic flips in this election. Uh, so that's, that's another thing I think that uh, just cannot be overstated. Well, and I mean, that goes back to what a representative form of government should be too is representing the people of your district and having giving them a voice at whatever level it may be and so reminding some of the candidates and electing the candidates that tend to do that i think maybe can solve some of our national problems too you know as far as divisiveness but that's a long ways out i think yeah I mean, the best example I have for that is, you know, there are a lot of, uh, you know, obviously rural areas tend to trend more towards Republican representation. And there are a lot of Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus with heavy agricultural districts. And when it comes time to vote on that farm bill, if history tells us anything, it tells us that they are more likely than not to vote no on the farm bill, because that's what uh, some of these far right think tanks in Washington, D.C. tell them that they need to do. 
And as a result of that, you know, it's again, they're not voting their district. They're not necessarily thinking for themselves. They're having somebody else do their thinking for them. And that is just not the quality of leadership that Americans are looking for when they go to cast ballots in elections. It is it is time for candidates on both sides to realize that and to start voting that way in Congress if they actually want to make a difference in this town and get reelected when they go back every November. Yeah, no, I think that's that's great you know, words of just to think about over the next few years heading into the next, you know, the presidential election too, is how can we get candidates that are going to be before us? Um, So maybe switching a little gear and I can't, it's on my mind. And the first thing we talked about when, um, when we started um, was that there's some, some recounting going on. There's some, you know, double checking, which is how how the system set up, but the biggest, at least around here, was District 26 in the state of Idaho that um, had a misformula, miscalculated formula on their spreadsheet that flipped a um, a Democratic um, district Republican by 30 or one seat by 30 votes, um, and everything came in a lot closer. Are you seeing that nationwide? Are you seeing some of that? go on or is this just a anomaly that just happens? I mean, it definitely happens, right? We were having problems, you know, while the polls were still open, we were getting news reports that there were problems with the voting machines once again in Maricopa County, Arizona. And uh, that that does contribute to some of these delays. I, I get asked this question a lot, actually. You know, they say, how is it that in 2022, we still, we, we don't know the results of elections on election night when in the years leading up to that, that wasn't necessarily the case. I think a lot of it has to do with just the amount of technology that we have introduced into the the voting sector. And I don't necessarily think that, you know, there's debates for and debates against using more technology and whether or not paper ballots and hand counting is the best way to go about it. But I I do think that we, we do need to understand that one, just voting is gonna be something that evolves the, the way that we vote is going to evolve with technological advances. And it's going to have to do that in order for us to get the types of results that we uh, are ex- expect to see, right? Quick turnaround, efficient counting. But with that does come glitches, right? And so I don't think that you're going to see a whole lot of, um, I don't think you're going to see a whole lot of situations like what happened in Idaho where uh, an error, uh, in this case, I think it was human oversight. I don't even think it was uh, machine related. Um, I don't think you're going to see many cases where that is going to result in a, a change of a call. Um, but it is something that I think a lot of people are very sensitive about, especially in the aftermath of uh, the big lie in 2020 that the election was somehow stolen from Donald Trump. You know, there's, there's very little evidence to substantiate those claims. Um, And so I think in an effort for people to reestablish some trust in the electoral system, they're spending a lot of extra time dotting I's and crossing T's uh, in order to make sure that they're making the right calls in some of those districts. Um, But that being said, uh, I I do think that it is very important for folks to, to know exactly what that looks like going in, right? I think perhaps one of the most important things that has happened on both sides of the aisle during this election is you're seeing people concede races. Uh, 
Dr. Oz, right, who is a very, very Trumpy Republican. Uh, when the race was called for Fetterman, uh, he called to concede and he gave a concession speech. Uh, and I think that that's a good thing, right? Because it would have been very easy based on what happened in 2020 in Pennsylvania in particular for him to dispute the results of that election. Uh, and he didn't. And I think that that is a very laudable thing uh, because when you're beat, you're beat. And the, the most graceful thing to do is to just bow out and respect the will of the voters in, in your district or your state. And so that being said, I think that we've we've established a little bit more trust in the system just with how smoothly smoothly overall voting went for the vast majority of people who went to the polls. But in addition to that, uh, you're seeing people start to concede races. Uh, and I think that that also goes a long way into just reassuring the, the public that, you know, there, there's nothing hanky going on. And when there is, they catch it in most cases. You know, I used to work in party politics and I saw instances where, you know, there were ballots with one person cast three ballots somehow and people caught up with that and they made adjustments to that and it didn't it didn't end up affecting the results of the the outcome crop disease is present weeks before it can be seen with the naked eye which means the wait and see of spray approach you've always taken when scouting your fields is waiting too long but veltima fungicides proven plant health benefits and revolutionary application flexibility improves yield potential even in the absence of disease Every bushel counts, so make sure you get everything you deserve this season with Veltima fungicide from BASF. Always always read and follow label directions. Well, and I think it goes to show, too, how many hands are involved in these checks and balances. and, and, And we want, as the millennial generation specifically, I mean, I was guilty of staying up till two o'clock in the morning. Tuesday night to to try to get the the results, which didn't come in until four four o'clock, um, and then obviously they flipped again. But we want instantaneous information, and we want it now. We want to know when we go to bed who our next representatives are going to be. We want to know whether you know the people that we were pulling so hardly for won, um, but maybe taking a step back, taking a deep breath and, and not pushing so hard would have not, you know, maybe that would have been caught before it got to the secretary of state, you know, it just things to. Yeah. I, I very much think that we need to take a deep breath when it comes to election night, right? There are some, there are some races where you're going to be able to make a call that night and that's, that's totally fine. Um, and there are other times when, you know what, it's okay to take your time, right? You have to think about, especially in the aftermath of COVID, all the different ways that we vote. And I don't want to get into whether or not we should be voting this way or not, but you have mail-in ballots, you have early ballots, you have provisional ballots, you have, you know, all these different options available and those ballots get stored in different places. And then you got to count them and you got to count them in a specific order. And you got to have people on both sides of you verifying the count as it's going along and people there to certify the machines. I mean, it's, it's, it's not something that should be rushed. It is something that should be done very carefully and very calculated. Um, And I think that that's important. The other thing too, to to keep in mind, you know, if, if, if you went to the polls to vote in person, anytime in the last several election cycles, you probably noticed that the people that are there as election workers, you know, most of those people there are volunteers that go to the polls to, you know, make sure that you have the right to vote. There's a lot of gray hair among uh, 
the people that do that. And I think that that's another thing too. We, we expect there to be these instantaneous results, but nobody wants to actually go in and do that, that difficult work. And quite frankly, that boring work of sitting there handing out I voted stickers to people. But that is a critical, critical job and a critical function. And I think that uh, that's another thing we have to take into consideration too, is that there are a lot of professionals behind the scenes to make sure that it is done safely and securely and accurately and timely. But there are a lot of volunteers that go into that process as well to make it smooth and efficient and a pleasant experience for people that show up to the polls. Yeah, no, and I think that's a great reminder to put humility back into the elections. Like at the end of the day, it's people. It's the people mm -hmm. running the polls. It's the people voting. It's the people on the ballot. Like we're all people. And I think sometimes we've we've just flat out forgotten that there's a human. <laughs> you know, there's a... There it's amazing to me that, you know, we go for almost, an, I mean, any more campaign cycles are two years long. Like once one election is over, the next cycle's already started. And I, I saw this funny meme on the internet. There's a, there's a scene in a Marvel movie where Iron Man has to knock out the Incredible Hulk and he's got his fist and he just punches him repeatedly trying to get him to get knocked out. And somebody uh, put a bunch of different political ads with his fist. And every time he punched it switched to a new political ad. And it's just like, people are getting bombarded with these political ads. And it's like that for two years. And I think part of the reason people demand results so quickly on election night is it's like, I want to be done with this. I don't want to do one more day of having this stuff shoved down my throat. Um, but I personally, I would rather wait for accurate results than get early returns that have to then be modified and revised. Because I do think that sometimes that demand for instantaneous results leads to accidents and accidents that happen often or in a lot of different places undermines trust in the system. And, and, and it is a good system that it works. Yeah. Well, and even, I mean, in our district, the, the lady that won was packing her bags for Monday already, you know, to head to training and get stuff, you know, and then to be flipped, like, that's not fair. Like it's, yeah. it is what it is. And it's, I'm glad that they counted. I'm glad it's, but just from, I, I feel bad for, like, yeah. mm -hmm. but so now that we are fairly certain that the house, um, has switched to Republican. What does that mean? What does that mean for agriculture? What does that mean for you? What does the next two years look like? So going into a farm bill year, I think it's going to be very helpful to have uh, a counterpoint or a counter view to the Senate and the White House. And I shouldn't even say the Senate because, you know, it, it is still possible the Senate will flip. Um, just from, from my perspective, I think it's going to remain 50-50, but it's still very much possible that it could flip. Um, but it will be it will be nice to have a counter view to the White House in a farm bill. I think that just I think that forces people to the table. We, we talked about this last week, right? It forces people to the table to find bipartisan solutions in order to get legislation over the finish line. So that'll be helpful. The other thing, too, is, you know, this administration, while it has been there have been a lot of positive steps in this administration from what we expected to see, for example, in the public land space and in the climate space, we have seen a lot of this administration recognize that, you know, the um, the that, that grazing and working lands are a part of the climate solution, not a cause of the problem. That's a super positive development that I don't think I expected to see from a Democratic administration. Uh, you know, uh, Undersecretary Robert Bonney at USDA actually says he cannot achieve his conservation goals uh, without the use of grazing. 
So that stuff is really positive. But on the flip side, you also have a lot of things coming out of this administration in other places that are just not helpful at all. Like this SEC rule that would require publicly traded companies to disclose the uh, emissions of their entire supply chain. Well, for uh, big companies like McDonald's, right? That means that they got to come to our supply chain too. And now all of a sudden, a mandate you've put on a publicly traded company that the SEC has jurisdiction over is forcing that standard onto people over which the SEC has no jurisdiction. And it's very arbitrary. You know, things like that, things like the GYPSA rules, which we've been battling for 14 years in Washington, DC in some form or another. Uh, you know, it's gonna be really important that we have some oversight of those programs. Not to mention all of the CARES Act and American Rescue Plan dollars that got sent to USDA for COVID relief that just haven't left USDA, haven't been spent. You know, we need to have some answers to these questions. We need to be exercising uh, oversight, right? Regardless of which party is in control, checks and balances exist to hold the executive branch of the government accountable, right? It's why Congress has oversight authority over the executive branch and why the executive branch is able to do things to kind of keep Congress in check as well through the implementation of regulation. And so it's going to be good for us to see some of this oversight that will undoubtedly come with the Republican controlled House. Uh, and I think it will also be beneficial for us to uh, just have an extra voice in that process. Um, the interesting thing to see is, is how uh, some of the, the leadership change up is going to work. Uh, Kevin Brady uh, is the was it was the top Republican on the Ways and Means Committee, which is a very important committee in the House of Representatives. He retired, so uh, they're going to need to replace him. Uh, and in a slim Republican majority, uh, that that does kind of make Kevin McCarthy's pathway to the speakership very very different than it would have been with a wider margin. Uh, and unfortunately, I hate to say it, but Tom Emmer, who's currently the chairman of the National Republican Campaign Committee, uh, you know, they did not have as good a night as they were supposed to have. And Emmer wanted to be the, the majority whip in the new Congress. I, I think his odds of getting that post after the results we saw on election night are pretty slim. So we'll see a change up in leadership, but we'll also see some positive things in the oversight space. And then also uh, just in terms of negotiating a farm bill, I think it'll be a, a lot more of a, a, an agriculture friendly farm bill with a Republican controlled house. Oh, that's positive to hear. And just, yeah, sending a little balance, what, whatever side you're on, I think having, having at least a Democrat and a Republican house and Senate or president just to balance things out helps helps not get too crazy one way or the other. You talked a, quite a bit about leadership and the importance. So when the majority, to explain to our listeners, um, when you have a majority party, they're the ones that choose leadership. Is that correct? So yes, um, except the speaker, the entire House of Representatives votes on who's going to be the speaker of the House, um, which is why it's a little bit different, right? Because the the Republicans, when they, uh, before they even get sworn in, uh, they will meet together to try and hash out uh, the issues, right? Because you do have a pretty big wing of the Republican Party. It's the farthest of the far right that dislike Kevin McCarthy. Uh, you know, once you get into leadership, uh, you become part of the quote unquote establishment and far right Republicans just don't like you as a general rule. So there are enough people that fit into that category that with a short majority, you know, Kevin McCarthy is going to need almost every Republican vote to secure the speakership election. And so those far right candidates are going to have 
pretty enormous bargaining power. And if something happens where they don't, they just decide they don't want to see McCarthy as speaker, uh, the conference is not going to allow Nancy Pelosi to win the election because Republicans split and that paves the way for Nancy Pelosi to be the speaker in a Republican majority house. So they will, they will have to find another candidate that they want to put forward for speaker. Uh, and so that is, uh, that's a little bit tricky, but everything else, majority leader, majority whip, majority caucus chair or conference chair, that, that those are all positions that are elected by Republicans in the majority party and the minority will do the same thing. Perfect. And then committees, how are committee leadership chosen? It's a little bit different between Republicans and Democrats. Republicans have to go through a, a steering committee and there is a, a somewhat informal election process that they have to go through. Uh, we do anticipate that most of the ranking members will flip over to become chairman. So Kathy McMorris Rogers uh, will become chairman of the Energy and Commerce Committee, G.T. Thompson, uh, chairman of the Agriculture Committee, uh, and then on down the line, uh, Kay Granger, chair of the Appropriations Committee. Uh, and so I don't expect to see a whole lot of turnover there. The big question is going to be uh, ways and means, uh, just given that that's an, a vacant seat. Um, so we'll, we'll see kind of what happens there. It, it's, it's mostly a rubber stamping exercise. The Republicans do have term limits, though, on, on chairmanships, uh, which is not something that the Democrats have. So I don't believe that any of the people in committee leadership are going to be termed out. But uh, I would have to look. Certainly nobody in the committees that we most regularly interact with at NCBA. So there shouldn't be, as far as the people you work with and the people you're lobbying with, um, you're not seeing any major shakeups that you're overly concerned about? No, not necessarily. I think uh, the, the, the dynamic will be much different, right? Because the, the, the difference between majority and minority for obvious reasons is pretty different, but I'm not seeing a whole, uh, the potential for a lot of change up in who is going to hold what seat. Very good. So I guess as we get to wrapping up and we can go, I mean, I can dive into all these different, you know, we can do state specific, we can do um, whatever, but was there any governor elections that you thought should have gone the other way or that were surprising to you? Uh, you know, not necessarily. Um, I, I think that I expected that outcome in most of the governor's races. Um, I, I was surprised by how good of a fight Lee Zeldin was able to put up in New York. Uh, but I mean, New York is still going to elect a, a Democratic governor for the foreseeable future. Not forever, probably, but for the next little while here. Um, DeSantis, holy smokes, uh, that was uh, so pretty impressive. I mean, he wasn't uh, on the ballot, or was he on the ballot? I guess he, I guess he was on the ballot. Uh, sorry about that. Um, he, he, he. We knew that he was going to win Florida again, uh, but the margin by which he won was pretty impressive. And if he has his eyes set, I, I know that I shouldn't be talking about this because I just complained about the fact that the twenty four election starts way too early. Uh, but if he decides to put, throw his hat in the ring for twenty twenty four, that bodes pretty well for him. He's got some good momentum coming off of that reelection race, um, and then Jared Polis. There were a lot of polls that said that, uh, you know, he was in danger. And I, I don't think that those polls had any validity whatsoever. I don't think there was any universe in which Jared Polis was not going to return to be governor of Colorado. <laughs> well, and when you get big metropolitan areas like Denver and the Front Range, um, it's really, really hard to switch an incumbent, especially from blue to red. I think to get a new governor, he's going to have to retire, unfortunately. Um, yeah. 
unfortunate for the agricultural community. I'm just going to leave it at that. I don't, I don't know much about his other politics, but I just have lived in Colorado and been impacted by some of, some of that. You know, the Democratic governor of, of Kansas would have been more of a surprise to me if Kansas didn't uh, vote to uh, protect abortion rights earlier this year. Uh, the margin that that ballot initiative passed by led me to believe that I think the Democratic candidate was going to prevail over there. Um, but that's about as close as it came to being a surprise for me. Um, I was a little bit surprised to see how big of a, uh, you know, being an Idaho boy, I watched those races pretty comfortable, and I don't think there was any question that Brad Little was going to win that gubernatorial race. I was shocked and severely disappointed to see just how big of a share of the vote that Ammon Bundy got. Uh, talking about extremism uh, and the scary uh, potential it has to speak to people, uh, that, that was very concerning for me to see, and I was very disappointed to see him get as much of the vote as he did. Well, and I, I'll have to look back, but like he competed pretty heavily with the Democratic candidate for governor here. And I can't remember which one ended up on top, but the fact it was that still the Democrat, thankfully. Okay. Because that, that's what I'm like for a, a third party to end up being that high. Um, but there's a lot of of that influence right now in the state of Idaho, which, as we've talked about, is is what's it's pulling people towards people like Am Ammon, and then it's also pushing people completely away from the Republican Party in general, too. So it's causing causing a lot of consternation. And it's, you know, looking at the district mom ran in, um, a lot of people were straight ticket voters. You know, you they pick it up and I'm either a D or an R and just down the list I go um, and not putting in. And it's mostly seems like it's on the the darn abortion thing right now with Roe versus Wade being turned over this year. Yeah, I, 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 I the it's an age old adage, right? It's the economy, stupid. Uh, and I think that most of the time that holds true. And I think that a lot of people were um, a, a lot of people were voting on the economy, but I think a lot more people were voting on row than we're voting on the economy. Uh, and that is that was probably the biggest surprise for me. If you look at some of these exit polls from some of these swing districts, the economy was a factor, but row uh, was was far higher on those suburban districts. And that was surprising to me. I was under the impression that, you know, we had put a little bit of distance between us and that Supreme Court decision. You've seen some of those uh, more blue states uh, move to protect abortion rights. And I thought that that would by itself kind of tamper that issue just a little bit. Um, but it very much was still on the minds of voters. And that cannot be argued, not even a little bit. So uh, even though it appears that Republicans uh, have taken the majority in the House and there is an outside chance they could do the same in the Senate before it is all said and done, I still have to say that Democrats won the night. Uh, they 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 held off a red wave that was supposedly coming and it just flat did not happen. <laughs> do you think that the red wave didn't happen because of the Trumpites? Do you think that was the main reason or is there any other factors causing the red wave to not have made land, maybe we could say? Well, I think part of it too is polling, right? Uh, that's another lesson we learned uh, this year again. Um, I... You know, I've been pretty active in uh, in elections and campaigns 
uh, going back to about, uh, well, realistically, the 2012 cycle when I cast my first ballot as a legal voter. But um, I've, I've been watching pretty closely and polls were pretty accurate up until 2016 uh, when Donald Trump won defying all the odds and polling has been absolute garbage ever since then. Uh, the, 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 the 2018 midterms, the polls were terrible then, and they didn't, they didn't reflect what happened. Same thing goes in 24 or in 20 and now 22. Um, you know, we still poll people by calling landlines. That is how we, that is how we conduct the vast majority of polling. And so that is just not a good way, uh, of, of measuring things. So I think that part of it is, is a polling error. Uh, I think that when you utilize that method of polling, it tends to skew the data set. I think you saw ample evidence of that. But I do also think that the Trump factor played in. The reason I say that is, is not just looking at one race in particular, right? We talked about the Georgia gubernatorial race versus the Georgia Senate race. Um, but you take that, you combine it with voters choosing to go on row at a time when inflation was still really high and the economy is staring down a recession, you know, usually that is the predominant factor in, in this type of an economic environment for voters at the polls. And for those exit polls to show so highly that it was reproductive rights, that factors in as well. And then again, Lauren Boebert going down in an R plus, I don't even know how heavy that district is, but it is, it is a heavily Republican district. Um, I, I, I just think that if you look at some of the, the margins of victory for the Republicans that won and the type of Republican that they are compared to the margin of either victory or loss of Republicans that are not so moderate, I, I, I have a hard time reconciling that with it not being a Trump problem. So, you know, I don't think that that is a lesson that the Republican Party is likely to learn. Uh, it, certainly not in 2024, if, if, if Trump is on the ballot himself, uh, it's going to take a, a while for them, I think, to, to start to come to terms with that. And realistically, it is going to take millennial Republican voters to send that message in primary elections. And if Trump does run again in 24, you know, by the time we get to like a 2026 midterm election, you're going to have a lot of Gen Z out there voting. And I don't know what the, the popularity of the Republican Party is among that generation. You know, I think you and me are at the tail end of the, of the millennial generation. And, you know, we, we still can point back to, you know, a Republican Party that we came up with in the Republican Party that we probably fell in love with. Uh, and I don't know that it's the same one that is being modeled. Uh, you know, some of these Gen Z Republican voters that are coming up. I don't know if they have the same memories of presidents or senators or prominent Republicans in the same way. So uh, it's going to take that younger voting base to change things in a primary situation uh, if we are going to start to address that problem. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's something sometimes the world forgets about is who's, who's coming up and who are we, who's going to be voting for things. I, I know that when I was, I was talking with, um, one of the retired now house of representatives. And I asked him, I said, my biggest problem right now with the Republican party is I feel like I'm fairly Republican, but I have some of these issues that I'm questioning. And he looks at me and he says, if you're most people have, if they're Republican have an issue, they're liberal on that's human nature. You're not going to hundred percent agree with this two-party system 100%. And I think we've gotten so far black and white that we've forgotten 
where we can, you know, that there is some, it's okay to be maybe pro-choice, but Republican. It's okay to, you know, be looking at the environment and still be Republican. It's okay if you're Democrat and think you're pro-life, like it's okay to be both. (laughs) Yeah, no. And I think, you know, and I apologize to your listeners that have no Idaho connection because I feel like you and I get on, we, we, we spend a lot of time on Idaho, but Idaho is a great case study in that, right? I mean, at one point, you know, and it's not just Republicans, Democrats are like this too, right? You know, it wasn't that long ago that to be a Republican meant that you ascribed to these principles that were lofty and overarching and covered a whole wide range of things, right? Limited government, uh, rigid individualism, uh, you know, and on the Democratic side, same thing, high in the sky, overarching principles. And now if you look at the platforms for either one, it boils it down to single specific issues. It says, we believe this way on this issue. And once we started doing that, we started alienating people. Uh, and I think that that creates some pretty big problems uh, when you start to build a, a coalition of people around ideals. And what's even more dangerous is building coalitions around individuals because human beings are fatally flawed, right? Uh, and Anytime you make your coalition around somebody's identity, which is really what Trumpism boils down to, it's not so much about Donald Trump. I feel like I beat up on the guy quite a bit. There's ample material for that. But, you know, in terms of the policies that he advanced when he was president, that was a pretty with 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 some pretty notable exceptions. That was a a pretty traditionally Republican administration. You know, they rolled back two regulations for every new regulation that they put out. They cut taxes. They were very focused on creating jobs. You know, that was, you know, he did a lot of good things from a policy perspective, but we made so much of it about Trump's identity that when he would do something that was, you know, perhaps more populist, like say the market facilitation program at USDA, for example, right, where we're giving direct payments to farmers for to offset trade losses that they're experiencing with our trade wars that we started, which is also not typically a Republican position, you know, then then we've turned that into, well, if you don't agree with that, then then you don't have a place in this grand coalition that we put together. It's no longer based on ideals. It's based on people. That's very dangerous. No, and I think I was just thinking about that a little bit today. You know, when they get on the floor to debate, you know, they always refer to somebody as a good gen- the good gentleman on the second floor, if they're referring to the governor, the good senator, you know, and it's, it's a kind way, but it's a position they're referring to. And it's, it's their, their responsibility, not them. Um, and I, and I think that just drives that point home. Exactly. It's, it's that position and the authority they have, but the responsibility and the character they have rather than, yeah, the person that they've created, you know, and the, behind that yeah well tanner i think we're we've hit at least 45 minutes and should probably jump off but i can't (laughs) thank you enough for jumping back on with us to to go dive into um what's happened this week and just the the ebbs and flows of it um i hope you've caught up with your sleep because i'm sure you were up till wee hours of the morning watching the results come in too I was, and I had to catch a flight the next day. So uh, I, I really uh, am planning on the, this evening uh, catching up on a lot of that sleep because uh, I would not quite say that I am uh, in the black in terms of rest. <laughs> <laughs> and you have a busy couple next weeks coming up too um, with 
state conventions and so forth. So we appreciate you squeezing us in. Um, is there anything you want to leave listeners with? Um, anything that yay elections are over? <laughs> uh, besides that, yay elections are over. I mean, look, I think it's pretty easy to, you know, regardless of which side of the aisle you happen to fall down on, to be discouraged in a situation like this, right? If you're a Democrat, you're probably disappointed in the results of Republicans taking control of the House. If you're a Republican, you're probably disappointed at the margins by which they're likely to take the House. And I think it's pretty easy to get bogged down in, in things like that. The, the one thing I would say is that, you know, regardless, if you're tuning in to this podcast, you're, you obviously have an interest in agriculture. And I continue to say, and I'm not just saying it for the sake of saying it, that it is a great time. There's never been a better time to be involved in agriculture. There's never been a more critical time to be involved in agriculture. Uh, you know, the, our CEO, Colin Woodall, was at a conference at the White House yesterday where the theme was food security is national security. And so it can look tumultuous in Washington, D.C. at times. It is never pretty in Washington, D.C. Um, but regardless of that, you know, I, I don't mean to paint a, a picture of gloom and doom because, you know, while there are some serious policy battles being fought in Washington and the results of the election play into how we fight those battles, uh, the, the industry we are here to defend at the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, uh, I am bullish on its outlook. Yeah, no, I think that's great. Great way to end. And um, again, thank you so much, Tanner, for joining in. Um, thank you listeners for tuning in to this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. Uh, reach out to us. Let us know what you thought of the elections, where your, your head's at. We, we love feedback. Um, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or you can email us at talk to us at millennialag.com. Until next week, we are Millennial Ag. HPPD resistant weeds are on the rise and marching toward a field near you. But your cornfield doesn't need to be a battlefield. There's another way to defeat these weeds. Switch tactics with Verdict Herbicide powered by Kixer Herbicide Technology, a non-HPPD corn pre-herbicide. It helps break resistance before the battle gets to your field. Help stop HPPD resistant weeds with Verdict Herbicide from BASF. Always read and follow label directions. Mm -hmm.